to cut a very long story short, what they were doing was they were running out of cash. So selling these very undervalued rigs, they were being taken advantage of, not the other way around. The final, the end of that thing was they ended up in bankruptcy. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step -step online course to guide you from novice to valuation experts. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests, Tobias Carlisle. Tobias, are you ready to rock? I am ready to rock. All right. Let me tell the audience a bit about you. Tobias is the founder of the Acquirers Multiple. He is also the founder of Acquirers Funds. He is best known as the author of the number one new release in Amazon Business and Finance, The Acquirers Multiple, How the Billionaire Contrarians of Deep Value Beat the Market. Also the Amazon bestsellers, Deep Value, Why Activist Investors and Other Contrarians Battle for Control of Losing Corporations. Also, Quantitative Value, A Practitioner's Guide to Automating Intelligent Investment and Eliminating Behavioral Errors, which is very important. <laughs> and Concentrated Investing, Strategies of the World's Greatest Concentrated Value Investors. He has extensive experience in investment management, business valuation, public company, corporate governance, and corporate law. Prior to founding the Forerunner to Acquirers Fund in 2010, Tobias was an analyst at an activist hedge fund general counsel of a company listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, and a corporate advisory lawyer. As a lawyer specializing in mergers and acquisitions, he has advised on transactions across a variety of industries in the United States, the UK, China, Australia, Singapore, Bermuda, Papua New Guinea, hmm, New Zealand, and Guam. He is a graduate of the University of Queensland in Australia with degrees in law and business. Tobias, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. The only thing that I should, the main thing to mention is my full-time job is as portfolio manager of the Acquirers Fund, which is an ETF listed on the New York Stock Exchange. The ticker is ZIG for ZIG, ZIG when the market zags. That's a long, short, deep value fund, very traditional sort of long positions. We try to buy them really deeply undervalued, which means that I don't like to pay a lot for growth, look for balance sheet strength, lots of free cash flow, buying back stock. And I short stuff that's massively overvalued and in distress, losing lots of money, lots of debt on the balance sheet. And so it makes it really easy to buy. We run that. It's kind of a, it's a passion. It's a vocation. It's an avocation. And so that's my full-time job. So I got lots of losers, lots of really bad positions. It's really easy to talk about that because we, we're wrong about 48% of the time. We're right about 52% of the time. So that's a little bit better than a coin flip. <laughs> hey, but honey, when I'm right, I'm really right. <laughs> it's the magnitude over frequency, right? When you, you look for those asymmetric positions. So when you get them right, you make a lot. When you get them wrong, you don't lose much. Exactly. I'm just curious, before we go on to the main question, you know, over here in Asia, we don't have such things as ETFs as kind of a, a method of implementing your strategy. Can you just give us a briefing for the listeners? Kind of what does that mean? Because in the old days, you started a fund and you went out, you applied for all of that and, you know, you raised money into that fund. I'm just curious, like, 
what's the pros and cons and, and how, what's it like? Yeah, that's a great question. So an exchange traded fund ETF is a slightly different structure. So you might be f- familiar with a mutual fund or a limited partnership, which is how most hedge funds are structured. What those things are that you have to sort of contact the manager in order to invest in those things. Often you need to be accredited, which, is, which means you need a certain level of assets or income. And any moves that the manager makes, so if the manager sells a position, that has some capital gains in it that flows through to you as the holder. So you might not have a gain, but you'd be paying tax. The ETF is this incredible creation that you can buy through your brokerage account. So if you open up your brokerage account, it should be available in there. You just NYSC, ZIG, Z-I-G, NYSC, whichever way around, ZIG.US, something like that. And it's not a flow through vehicle for capital gains provided that it's managed properly, which means that we make buys and sells in the fund and they don't impact you. What happens is your capital gain is where you buy it and where you sell it. Mm, so it's, it's a lot like, it's the same as buying a share price. A, a share. Right. So it's, it's like a stock. Exactly right. Yep. It's like a stock that trades other stocks. And just curious because when I left America, it was 1992 and I left America right about where you are living and I came to Thailand and of course we didn't really even have ETFs at that time. I'm just curious, maybe you could just give the, the listeners just a real brief discussion of why would somebody implement their ideas through an ETF in America, let's just say where, where there's lots of options versus implementing your ideas through a fund? What benefit do you get from that? The reason to do it as some sort of hedge fund is so you can charge higher fees. You get a, you get a, man, a big fat management fee and a big fat carry. If you're like I am and you sort of, you know, I'm, I'm clearly I'm Australian. I've been in the States for about a decade now. The way that I've got recognition or, you know, the way that I've got known is through writing books because I don't have a great network here. I don't, I don't know a lot of people. So I, and I, there's a trend in this industry towards lower fees for the most part. So I kind of hate getting the lockups. I don't think there's any reason to lock up capital, which is what the hedge funds do. It's difficult to get in and out of the hedge fund. When you have an underlying, you know, so this, the hedge fund invests, my fund, sorry, invests in basically the universe is the S&P 1500, which is a composite index of the largest 1500 stocks out of, you know, that maybe there are like 3000 investable stocks in the States. That's very liquid. So there's just no reason for me to throw up gates and make it very hard for people to get in and out. So this thing is, it's easy for smaller investors to invest through their brokerage account directly into the fund. I can manage it, describe what's happening. You can see the holdings are all published every day on the website, which is acquirersfund.com. And you can see all of the inner workings and everything. So it's just the trend of the world towards transparency and low fees. And so I just thought I'd get out in front of the trend. Got it. That makes sense. Do you know how many large and liquid companies there are in the Chinese stock market? If you just said that in the US market, you mentioned about 3000 as potentially, you know, kind of what we could call investable. It's like for a high net worth individual, it might be, there might be more than that. It might be, it could be 5,000 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But for sort of, you know, professional investors, it's about 3000. Yeah. I did uh, for my PhD dissertation, one of my things I needed to do was look at markets across the world, particularly across Asia, and determine what was, you know, what was the definition of large and liquid. 
And I came up with- What is the definition? Well, I would say that the definition of large and liquid is probably minimum $250 million. Mm. And you would say average daily turnover of, it depends. I mean, you could say half a million dollars mm-hmm. to a million dollars. It, the definition depends. Are we talking about kind of a high net worth or are we talking about an institutional investor? But something along that line. So it does include small cap. We don't want to exclude small cap, but it's got to be that you could put some you know, reasonable amount of money in it. If it's only trading $100,000 a day, you know, it's very hard to allocate money to that. Which of those two standards is harder to meet, do you think, the 250 million or the half a million to a million shares a day? The half a million to a million shares a day. You know, I mean, and it's really what's most important is that you can actually get in and out for most people. But what was interesting to me is that China has 3,000 large and liquid companies. Wow. Investable companies. And it's growing at such a pace. I think my number for the US was something like 4,500. So your number that you said about 5,000 right. is probably about right. And when what, did you do the study? I did the study about three years ago and I've yeah, updated okay. it pretty regularly. I haven't really published it. I should do more on that, but I would uh, guess it's 5,000. So I, I'll take your, I'll take your number. Yeah. So what my forecast from that is that five years from now, based upon trends we see in China and in the U S China will have more large and liquid companies in their stock market. In fact, China will become a bigger you know, more investable stock market, the core of capitalism than the United <laughs> States. Than the I United believe States. it. That's crazy. That's amazing. I mean, that's just a, an interesting statistic based upon, you know, what we're talking about. So yeah, there you go. In fact, I should probably include a link to that in the show notes. So if anybody <laughs> wants to dig in more, you can. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at it to put that, yeah. put that study up. Yeah, I will. So Anyways, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, I should say I've always, you know, I read all of Buffett's stuff before I ever started investing. And I was kind of prevented from investing in a lot of stuff because I was an M&A lawyer. And it's just not a good look if, you know, if the youngest lawyer on the deal team has a position in the stock that's getting taken over that looks like insider trading. So we were kind of always barred from buying anything. So I had read all of the theory by the time I got before I even opened my first brokerage account. And so I didn't ever get, I've never got very concentrated. I've never had an enormous amount of my net worth in any individual positions. So I've been quite comfortable making lots of dumb errors and putting the money in the wrong positions. And I've learned a lot. Like that's how you learn. You, you make, make as many mistakes as you can as quickly as you can. And that's how you kind of figure out what you're doing. So it's hard for me to narrow it down to just one, but I'll tell you, this was for me, this is an important one in my own evolution as an investor. So I started out looking for kind of undervalued assets. That's how I started out. Mm. And I started out looking at net current asset value, net nets, the old Graham net nets. And I graduated from Graham Net Nets to looking at more of these kind of, you know, asset heavy businesses and trying to find ones that were deeply undervalued. So in, when the BP oil spill happened, I forget exactly when that is, but maybe more than a decade ago. Yep. I had this thought, I don't want to be right in the epicenter of that. I don't want to be in BP, but there were all of these other, any oil and gas company that was in the Gulf or nearby got dinged up pretty badly. And one in particular was Seahawk drilling. And what Seahawk drilling, they had about 150 of these jack-up rigs. So a jack-up rig 
is something that floats out into the middle of the Gulf of Texas, puts its pylons down into the bottom and it jacks itself up out of the water and it drills. And what they did was they leased them out to other companies that were drilling. So you can imagine as soon as the BP oil spill happens, all those drilling stops, they get, they're in a lot of trouble. And so they don't have a lot of cash flow, but they're very asset heavy. So I figured out that they were trading like 10 cents on the dollar. That was my estimate. The big problem is that there's no cash flow. So they were saying there's never been an opportunity like this to buy jack up rigs in the Gulf of Texas and to like really capitalize and become, you know, the big driller in this area. And so I thought, well, this is a, here we go. These guys know what they're doing. They're very, very undervalued. They're going to capitalize on this. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And I, you know, I've, I've subsequently learned when I wrote uh, Concentrated Investing, we, in, we interviewed Christian CM, who's like the Norwegian oil and gas maestro. He created Transocean. He's been around forever. He says you buy these companies when they're negative EBITDA, like when they're losing money, that's the time to buy. And you sell them when they're making a lot of money. You know, it's counter cyclical, counterintuitive. That's kind of contrarian. That's the way value works. So I was kind of doing the right thing. The issue was that these guys just didn't have the cash. So I'd look at the quarterly report and I'd see that they'd sold some rigs and like that, I wasn't smart enough to think that's kind of the opposite of what you guys said you were doing to cut a very long story short, what they were doing was they were running out of cash. So selling these very undervalued rigs, they were being taken advantage of, not the other way around. The final, the end of that thing was they ended up in bankruptcy and I, I didn't ride it all the way into bankruptcy, but I was down 80 or 90%. It didn't really matter. It was as close to being 100% wrong as you can possibly be. But it was disappointing because I thought the thesis was pretty good. And, you know, I'd written publicly about it. I had this little website, Greenbacked, which is still there. You can go look at the wreckage of this position. It's still on the site. <laughs> yeah, I just got it wrong. And it's one of those things that I still think that the thesis was a sound one. I just missed, and this is probably the takeaway from it. You can have a good thesis, but you have to be very careful of the cash flow. So that was sort of one of the things that transitioned me away from doing that purely asset-based investing and looking at flows a little bit more closely, looking at cash flows, looking at balance sheet, health mm. in addition to making sure that the business was actually operating in a good one. Right, right. And what lessons did you learn from this? Well, that was the, the very beginning of me starting on the path towards where I am now, which is I look for you know, I want, my focus is it's the acquirers, multiple acquirers funds. We want to think like an acquirer, think like a buyout firm, think like an activist, think like someone who looks at the company in its totality. And when you do that, you're not only buying the equity, the market capitalization, you need to think about the debt, you need to think about any other debt-like securities, so preference shares that are quasi-debt, somewhere between debt and equity underfunded pensions. There are a million ways to get caught convertible notes to be very careful about all these holes in the balance sheet that might sink you. And then on the other hand, you're sure that they've got the free cash there. And I like buybacks for the reason that I have a very powerful signal. Now buybacks occur at the top in expensive companies, but occur in undervalued companies. So the very the existence of a buyback doesn't tell you much. Often what a buyback is doing is just cleaning up option issuance to, to senior It's a material buyback that you want, a big buyback. And that's an important message. One thing that management probably agrees with you, that the stock is undervalued, helping you out. 
two, it tells you that the free cash flow is real and they think there's going to be more in the future. That's a very powerful message. And the materiality of it tells you the undervaluation of the company. You just, it's just sort of a matter of things expensive. This, the business is not a huge part of the, the overall valuation, the size of the business. So it just can't buy back much stock. Whereas if the, if the business is trading very cheaply in the business, Sorry, if the market capitalization is cheap, if the price is cheap, but the business is quite substantial relative to the size of the market capitalization, when they buy back stock, it is very material. So material buyback is a very powerful signal. So that's why I run my business now. The acquirer's multiple just identifies these sort of stocks and the acquirer's fund. We do a little bit more work and then we buy them or short them as the case may be. Mm. And one question about that before I get into my comments. When a share price is going down, as this one did quite substantially, but as you think about it now, obviously our number one risk management for your type of investing, let's say, and my type of investing, the number one risk management tool is good research, right? So we like the company, we've seen that the company is strong, we like the corporate governance, therefore, if the share price goes down, hey, it's cheaper, right? But at some point, that's wrong. And in this case, you know, that was the case. I'm just curious, as far as, you know, deciding whether to exit or add to a position when a stock goes down, how do you think about that in relation to, let's say, this, what you learned from this and just, you know, your own thinking about that? Yeah, it's a hard, it's a very hard decision to make. It's the hardest one to make because most of the time the market's right and you're wrong. So you have to be a little bit humble about it, but then equally you know, in order to beat the market, you have to be able to make these, you have to be able to buy these things and see them go against you. A big part of becoming comfortable with a position is doing the valuation. So I always like to do the valuation and then you, I anchor to the valuation and not the share price. Mm. You know, something can be cheap and still go into bankruptcy. So that's not, it doesn't save your life. You have to look at the health of the business. You have to look at the health of the balance sheet. You want the quality of the business to be at a reasonable level, sufficient so that it can survive. And a lot of that's looking at debt to equity ratios, quick ratios, making mm. sure they can cover their interest and so on. You know, making sure that you can cover the bullet payment on the debt. If that becomes due, all of those sort of things you have to be comfortable with. And then you're looking at the share price, like something that can be taken advantage of. I wouldn't sell or otherwise because of the movement in the share price even though, and that does mean though sometimes I'm going to be wrong and make a silly mistake that mm. if I had followed the share price more closely, I would have got right. But I think that on balance, it works to make more money that way. So that's, that's the way I, that's the way I do it. Got it. Got it. All right. Let, let me summarize what I took away from your story and uh, let me know if you missed anything. If I missed anything, the first thing I wrote down is assets are valuable, but cash is king. Right. And I think it's a great lesson that, you know, it's great to have, I mean, think about, you know, there's a lot of people that are asset rich and cash poor. And the problem about that is that when you can't meet your bills because the cash flow is not there, the consequences are massive. And so that's a, a great lesson. The other thing that, that I thought about was something that my mother always said, was that when you marry someone, you marry their family. <laughs> and it just made me think about how when you buy something, you're buying everything. And you talked about the idea of looking at it from an acquirer's perspective 
that means, you know, you got to think about that debt. You got to think about that preferred share. Whereas if you're not thinking from an acquirer's perspective, it's kind of a date. Right. But what you're trying to do is think of it as this is a marriage. Right. And, you know, I think that that's kind of a, a takeaway from my own kind of personal life. But yeah, uh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I, I do want to caveat this a little bit because there's many listeners who are fundamental analysts digging deep into a story feel very confident about their story and maybe right on most parts of it, but they're just about to make the same mistake you made. So what one piece of advice would you tell them to do? It's very hard to narrow it down to one piece of advice, but I really think that the most important thing is not so much stock selection, but portfolio management, which means provided that you don't stick too much into any given position, you can't lose anything that's not in it. So you just need to be sufficiently diversified and just take care with the concentration. Because the thing that I have seen over and over again, not so much in my own portfolio because I got that religion very early, but in portfolios of friends of mine is that they just put too much into the one position and then they keep on re-upping as it goes down mm. all the way to zero. So for me, it's just don't get too concentrated into any given position. Got it. And this highlights there's from all the interviews I've done and the, the stories that have been submitted to me, being an analyst, I analyzed it and I tried to tease out what are the main mistakes that people have made. And there's six common mistakes. And this one, what you're mentioning and also what you talked about for your story is number two. And that means the second most common. The first most common is that they fail to do their own research. That wasn't right. the case in your, in your case. Number two is fail to properly assess and manage risk. And I think that what you're talking about, first of all, the assessment of the risk, but the second part is the managing of the sizing, the position and thinking about diversification. And I think there's another paper that I wrote, particularly in, in Asia, that was an academic paper that I said, it's called uh, 10 stocks are enough in Asia. And what I tried to highlight was that, you know, a lot of times diversification in the world of investing, professional, professional investing, institutional investing, it's actually, it's actually used in the wrong way, the opposite way of the way I think it should be thought of. You know, the beauty of what Harry Markowitz described in his original work on diversification was that you don't need that many stocks to get rid of that company-specific risk. It's not, he wasn't saying add more and more and more stocks to get rid of all risk. He was saying, wow, it's amazing how much risk can be gotten rid of with just a small number of stocks. So if you look at the trade-off between risk and return and you ask yourself, how do I get rid of the maximum amount of risk without getting rid of the opportunity to outperform? Because if you own every stock, you're not going to outperform. And my number was 10 in Asia. And to say to an average individual investor, never own less than 10 stocks. Yeah. That's probably right. Listen, I, I like, you know, my portfolio, my acquirer's fund portfolio is 30. And that's a very common number in yep. both academia using Markowitz, get rid of the uh, non-diversifiable risk somewhere between 20 and 30. Mm. Also for the value investors, Klarman, Graham, they, they sort of fall out around that number. Yep. It really depends. You know, there's, it's just really, it becomes a matter of taste. How much volatility can you wear in your portfolio? How much work are you prepared to do on the positions? What sort of positions are you putting on? 
because you know you can put i I buy and sell options as a value investor, not not an options trader, which is a very different way of doing it. But some of these options, you know, they have zero intrinsic value. They could expire worthless. So I'm not going to put 10% of my portfolio into something like that. I might put 1%. I might put 3% depending on how confident I'm feeling. But that's still a much, much smaller position than anybody going more concentrated than 10. Yeah. Well, the thing about 10 is it was kind of the minimum and many, you know, it makes sense to hold more than that. Or in my case, a lot of time, if I get close to 10, then what I do is apply stop losses because losing you know, 80% of a 10% holding is still pretty massive. You know? Right. So, That'll ruin your year. Yes, exactly. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? You know, I want that ETF that I run the acquirers fund to outperform the market. And that's not something that, you know, that's my wish. That's not a guarantee. You know, that's hard to do. Most funds don't do that. But I do think that there are some reasons why value might work really well at the moment. And one of them is that it's had this very bad two-year run starting in January 2018. It's really underperformed the market. Mm. And I think that there is, when that happens, typically what happens is that the, there's a bounce back afterwards. And I think that we're probably, I think it started August 27, which was the best day for value, worst day for momentum. I think it's continued on through September and October and through November. So I'm hopeful. I've been had my heart broken a few times by this, uh, by the old value investing. But I think that of all of the strategies that are out there, value is the one right now that is the only one that in absolute and relative terms can generate some good performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the underperformance has been more than just two years. If you look at it, you know, it's been almost a decade because the stock market well, been on a run. Yeah. You know. What I meant was it's been down for two years in a market that's yeah. been up and that the sum total of that is yeah, underperformance coming up on yeah. a decade. It's exactly. been tough. Yep. All right. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit my worst investment ever. As we end, Tobias, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? None at all. I'm very familiar with uh, losers because I have them all the time. You shouldn't be worried about them. It's a good way to learn. And there'll be more in the future. So you've got to come to terms with them. Don't let them blow up your portfolio and don't let them blow up your mind too much. Yes, the last part is very important, ladies and gentlemen, because remember, majority of people that I ask to come on the show say, no way. So (laughs) (laughs) I think what you've shown, Tobias, is that you you have the ability to look through your worst investment and grow from that. And I think that's ultimately what would make you a great person to follow and and listen to. So that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.